Today's episode is presented by Public. Public Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that is 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, and 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance. Just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com backslash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Henderson. Welcome in to Chit Chat Money, soon to be Chit Chat Stocks although I'm sure people are tired of us saying that by now, but we will make the slow but not monumental transition uh, on February 1st. This is the Investing Power Hour, number 93. We're closing in on 100, and we did mention doing probably not a real Power Hour, the drinking game, but maybe we'll have a celebratory drink, uh, although Ryan is at where he's located. It's about 9 in the morning, but... I'm rambling. Ryan, how are we doing today uh, before we get started? Doing well. Uh, yeah, 9 a.m. drink might be a little rough, but uh, got to celebrate somehow. So I'm up for finding something. Maybe I could have like a uh, non-alcoholic beer or something. The uh, Wow. Huge. Wow. Yeah. You're a real partier over here. Yeah. Well, it's 9 a.m. on a Thursday. The uh, But yeah, no, we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. One of my New Year's uh, 2024 predictions may be coming true. So I'm like a market profit now. I'm pretty, I'm, I've been crushing it, which is dangerous. I'd rather not have good short term predictions because then I might get confident in my own abilities. Um, but yeah, there's lots to talk about. There's an interesting Wall Street bets thread. They're back, uh, which raises kind of an interesting question. So we could talk about that as well. But, uh, what do you have on the agenda for today? Yeah, I got some Amazon news, but they're just walkout technology. You have some Amazon news as well, so we might hit that as a fun section. And I also have rent uh, costs going down in the United States plus the inflation report, which are both related. So I think I'm going to do that topic. And then if we have time, I have some fun charts about India. But before we get started, I want to say as a reminder, we are changing our name from Chit Chat Money the chit chat stocks and that will be in approximately 20 days on february 1st second if you want to subscribe to our newsletter uh, you can do so at uh, the link in the show notes or by searching on substack chit chat money and then if you enjoy these shows please 
if you want to help us, that's the be- the best way to do it is to give us a review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Ryan, is there anything else you want to remind the listeners before getting started? I guess these go live every Thursday, if anyone doesn't know. Uh, usually 9.30 a.m. Pacific time, although Ryan had a meeting uh, some of his work, so we had to start a little late today. But yeah, I think that's it. We're talking the, anything. Yeah, any any else? Anything else from you? The uh, we just recorded a podcast about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater Associates. It's gotten some pretty good feedback. I think people. I, I was kind of curious how it would be received, but uh, it seems like people enjoy kind of. I don't want to call it investigative work because. We did very little investigating, but almost a book review in that way. So maybe it's a format we'll replicate in the future. But I think we start with my prediction, which was that match group. And I said that you can go back, you can run run the tape. And I stole this take from someone else, so no credit to myself. But I said match group would be acquired if it stayed at its current price some point in 2024. There has not been an acquisition, but Elliott Management, uh, founded by Paul Singer, famed activist investment firm, I think the second largest head fund in America right now, took an activist stake in Match Group, a billion-dollar position. It's about 10% of the market cap. And there were some rumors circulating on the old Twitter X-sphere that this could be a full on takeout, totally speculation and could be uh bogus. But if I'm right, there goes my, uh, one of my 2024 predictions. So I'm uh, excited by that one. What did you think of this news? I got to say, so we've been talking about how we're moving our savings over from the fund and putting it into I mean, new it's stocks. Already, it's already, that's been done for a month. I don't really know what you're delaying Ryan, but <laughs> what's happening at your end, but uh, it's been like a month now. I haven't taken the time to go through all the positions or I haven't added back all the positions that were in the fund. And some of them I've been kind of maybe in my head, back of my mind, not wanted to do it. I did not buy Match Group. But oh. after this news, I FOMO bought and it's back down. So uh, totally, <laughs> totally misread that situation. And uh, I'm hoping that... Paul Singer and Elliott Management have some some plans beyond just a 10% position. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I do own Match Group as well, full disclosure. So if I sound bullish, I am. Uh, and I am biased in this situation. But I thought it was an interesting investment because I don't know exactly what they plan to do. They seem to have done an activist to themselves by gutting the management team, what was that, two years ago now? Probably not Not two years ago, coming up on two years this summer. And they've, they're trying to fix stuff, I guess, that's that went wrong at Tinder. And then they implemented a buyback program, and they seem to be pretty rational on their costs. So I don't know exactly what they're going to plan to do, but we'll see. I think it makes it more exciting. And it's a small enough company where a company or excuse me, a fund like Elliott can take a large enough position to start gaining some significant control here. So we'll see what happens. But I don't know if it changes my thesis too much. 
if it keeps them in the straight and narrow with not making dumb acquisitions and consistently repurchasing stock, I, that's good. But I think they were starting to do that anyways. So, yeah. And there's, I guess I disagree with all the bear cases about a de- decrease in payers after they jacked up tuna prices in the US by 50%. Because as we went through on our match group podcast, which I forget. We did a full overview on them, I believe, sometime this spring. Maybe Ryan can look up the exact date here. That is not really a concern for me. And, uh, yeah, uh, I think they're doing a fine job. The new management team. I agree. That's kind of why I thought this was maybe a better signal than just an activist stake is because there isn't it doesn't feel like there's a lot you can do here. It doesn't feel like the company's really that bloated. They do generate a lot of cash. They've been, they revamped the executive suite, it sounds like, and they did a number of layoffs, I believe, without kind of, it wasn't any big announcement, but it sounds like they restructured. So I'd be curious. I don't know if they could just walk in here on cut costs. It feels to me like they're potentially building out a position to take this out outright because it doesn't, I just don't see how they could like juice this for more than it's already got. Maybe they have some ideas strategically around what they could do with Tinder, but I don't know. Yeah, it did seem a little weird to me. It maybe doesn't they, feel like they, it needs an activist. Maybe selling off the legacy no growth slash declining stuff could be in the cards and that could be that sounds like something private equity would want those but private private equity likes that type of stuff right so maybe maybe that could be there um maybe divestitures could be in the cards i'm not exactly sure but i guess to be fair elliot didn't put out any presentation usually they okay it's always in the wall street journal so they're like I don't want to say their mouthpiece, but they use them to communicate discreetly what their plans are sometimes. And it doesn't seem this time that it's an activist at this point, because usually they put out some sort of leak or presentation that says this is what's wrong. And they're pretty blunt about it, but we'll see. No, I guess we don't know not, yet. They're not always not activists. Blunt. It's, it's actually, right. it feels like it's quite vague. And it's just that one, what's his name? Jesse Cohn just put out a tweet that says, we look forward to working with the company to improve operations or whatever. And it's like every single time that happens, the CEO is either resigning or fired within a couple of months. It seems unlikely that that would happen with BK, Bernard Kim, CEO of Match Group, just because uh, to me, it felt like it was the right fit. Like, uh, resume wise, what he did with Asinga, it seems like he's made a, took a lot of the right steps so far in his time there. So it just maybe he could bring someone in, but I don't know if there's there that many people out there that are better suited. So we'll see. Uh, divestitures, yeah, I guess that makes sense, but I just wonder like who the hell's buying it. We looked at Spark Networks, and it feels like those businesses, the the legacy apps for Match Group are probably better than Sparks, but they're still, they go through a lot of the same problems and it didn't seem like anybody wanted to touch Spark Networks. So yeah, uh, it's hard for those things to generate a lot of cash would be my 
uh, my take there without doing a bunch of performance marketing, the, which I think, means uh, they're not generating cash anyways. Yeah. And I think with this will be interesting as a match group shareholder because there is a big debate. Well, it's not that followed of a stock, but within the people that follow the stock, there's a big debate on whether the, the payer declines at Tinder are really that big of a deal. I am in the camp that it's not that big of a deal since they jacked up prices by 50%. And that they're going to lap that and everything will be okay as long as they continue to improve the, the actual Tinder product for people. If Elliot, like, okay, if you're a big activist fund and you take a 10% position in a company, they're going to ask for data behind your reasoning of raising prices. And if they show that, like, they're going to, ha- they're going to be able to see whether the emperor has no clothes with these price increases, right? If, uh, it's actually worse than we think. And there is, you know, the apps in terminal decline. So if nothing, uh, what I'm saying is, is if nothing comes out around that from an activist perspective around Tinder, then it gives me more confidence that the company is on the right track. Because if there was something wrong, then an activist would be loud about trying to change, shake things up. Yeah. What would concern me is that, so the stock, Elliot announced their stake. The stock jumped like 15%. Then it dropped to like 5%. And then now it's below where they announced their stake at. If they sold their position around these prices, I would be concerned because it feels like they probably got a glimpse at better data and were concerned with what they saw. So, Oh, you mean, no, no, there's no way. If they... You mean to that volume now? Come on, no. they they wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I'm not talking. I'm not saying that they're the ones selling, but I'm saying oh, if okay, they okay. announced if they announced that they got rid of their stake without any big strategic changes, without the stock price having jumped, then I'd be concerned. Say like we hear hear about this in May or June when their 13F comes out. Yeah. Or, yeah, that would be whenever we get an update. I, I can't do the math correctly. Yeah, I think that makes sense, but. I, I, match group is so interesting. People seem to like it. I know as something that we cover, I, I seem, I like to cover it. I think I understand the business fairly well, though. Doesn't mean like, you know, we've lost money on it so far. It doesn't mean you should buy it. You should, probably shouldn't listen to us about it because I think I might be a little bit too biased with the company. Um, but when they come out with their new earnings, I think we'll probably cover them on the power hour again. Uh, but I think that's it for now on that topic. We have a question from John Gallegos. Hey, thoughts on doing an episode on the Swedish cereal acquires. You list off five companies here that I've never heard of, uh, so I don't have any opinion on them now, but they could be very fun. I do like the Nordic markets. There seem to be a lot of high-quality companies there. I would say, uh, John, who hit us up with that question, shoot us a DM on Twitter or the email that we have in all of our show notes, and we can maybe get the ball rolling there because I don't know much about these companies. Other questions. Do you guys think anything could disrupt Match's user value proposition? It seems like they just need to compete against other apps, but apps are still the best quote-unquote dating product. That is from Tyler, uh, recurring listener. Ryan, anything on those, I guess, questions? Well, to go back to John's question, you mentioned the serial acquirers. Like Brett, I don't know any of them, but sometimes doing like an hour long episode or even shorter on a serial acquirer can be quite boring just in the sense that like the blueprint is pretty like straight 
cut. You know, they just acquire, especially if it's like a conglomerate where there isn't any structured strategy, like match groups, technically a serial acquirer. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all, there's all one theme around it. So if it's like just general conglomerates, sometimes they can be a little boring to analyze because it's like, all right, what are they going to do next with their cash? Uh, I don't know. They, they just acquire stuff and they do a good job of it. So it's like a pretty short episode, but yeah, it's not, it's not, it could be interesting. Yeah, it could be. It could be depending on what their operating companies are. But when you go into an episode and say, all right, well, we like management. Okay, there's the episode. <laughs> it's it's, it's like hard. the ask, yeah, it's like the allocators. Like Brookfield shows shows yeah. on that stuff. It's like you're basically just saying they've done a good job and they'll keep doing a good job. And they'll collect a whole bunch of assets or uh, capital in the process. And it's a little bit of a boring episode. So Anyways, let's uh, yeah, let's take some of these questions from Tyler. Do you guys have any thoughts on if we might get a reacceleration of goods uh, inflation due to? Well, I said issues? I was going to hit that in the inflation section, but sorry, I wrote oh. that. Um, yeah, the uh, yeah, I mean, we can we we can talk touch on that in a second. The other thing that I thought was kind of well, he asks here. Do you guys think anything could disrupt Match's user value proposition? It seems like they just need to compete against other apps, but apps are still the best dating product. I still think they provide a ton of value to users. I would say the biggest headwind to Tinder, aside from them maybe just reaching scale quicker than people thought, like they are kind of the go-to app around the world, and maybe people thought they had longer room to grow, is Hinge cannibalizing a lot of the users or Hinge at least cannibalizing some of the payers? I think they're, even though match management for Match Group says they're not like eating away at their own market, anecdotally, at least here in the US, it certainly has. And I would say the biggest competition is really just Hinge and Bumble, basically. Yeah, and it's not the end of the world if because the Venn diagram of overlapping users isn't it's not a circle. So if they eat, you know, some if one of their apps competes with it, you know, and then you have those niche apps like the Chispa, BLK, uh, what's their Christian focused one? Upward, I think, and then a few others, though those might eat into, you know, the corners as well, but it's What's not the a giant cons- people. What? What's the one oh, for like single parents? The single parents one is stir. Uh, but stir. as not a single parent, I don't know much about that one. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much to be worried about outside of the dating app universe because we all know, like, it, it's it's weird. It's you can't. There's no facts around this, but we all know that's a. It's. Romantic relationships are a nuanced place, and you don't put that on your, you know, you don't advertise that on your Instagram page or Facebook profile. You might like meet someone on an app and then message off, but the value is like there's a reason Facebook dating failed because you can't really mix social and kind of searching for romantic relationships with something else. These pure plays, I, I don't think there's much to worry about from competition anywhere else. It's really the other dating apps. And it'd be so difficult to scale a dating app today. And it's kind of such a 
it's random to me that Hinge has been able to do so well. Well, because they're owned by Match Group. I know, but it would be very difficult if you're starting from square one, even with a bunch of capital, to draw people away from those apps today. Wouldn't you think? Like Bumble, Tinder, Hinge, you have pretty much everything you're looking for unless you want a really niche one. To be like an a catch-all type of app like those, it, I, I just don't see how you scale one a day because it's so hard to get that network effect going. Yeah, I agree. And you, you're, no one's going to have like 10. That's very chaotic. Or maybe the vast majority of people won't have 10 uh, downloaded. You might have a couple. But yeah, I see your point. I don't... Part Remember of the that one that tried that, to do it with the whole... Uh, the Peter Thiel backed one. Oh yeah, well that I mean, like all those types of political style ones, they're doomed to fail from the start. But the with I think Hinge innovated a bit, and you see now Tinder copying all of their product features that they should have copied right away, even if they didn't own them. Uh, yeah. So the other question, let's see. Did you uh, see the debate between the Rick CEO and Twitter? Did not. Uh, I saw a little bit of it. So I think if if I'm thinking of the one, if you're referring to the one I'm thinking of, it's someone basically called uh, called them out for not being a great capital allocator, which we've had him on the show and there are some flaws or some difficulties in that business, but I would not call him a bad capital allocator. It seems like he's done a really good job choosing when when it's worth trying to add new stores and when it's worth acquiring their own stock. Yeah, I mean, he actually, I believe there's a quote where he says, the worst thing we can possibly be is approximately fairly valued because then I can't make a decision. I don't know what his capital allocation is like in terms of uh, like operating the restaurants, operating the new new locations, and allocating capital there, because that kind of requires a different skill set. But in terms of understanding what his stock is worth, I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I don't keep updated with the business, but all I know is we recorded that interview with him. I would go listen to that. If you want more insights, don't know much about this Twitter thing. Uh, other questions. Do you have any thoughts on Berkshire now owning close to 40% of Occidental Petroleum? Uh, he seems to like it. I didn't know it was 40%. I thought it was, I looked up on Whale Wisdom, it was 25%, but maybe they have that preferred thing. I'm not an expert on that at all. So, no thoughts. He seems to like energy. Yeah. Fairly cheap Whale. stock, but not. Yeah. Whale Wisdom certainly has some flaws. The, uh, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't account for a lot of things, uh, which not not always their fault. Sometimes it's just not accounted for in the 13F. But 34%, the only thought I have here, since I don't follow Oxy in any way, is that I now see the struggle of him trying to buy things. Because he started buying Oxy like three or four years ago. I remember like, I want to say a year and a half ago, he was at 20%. And he's just been buying like on a regular basis. And he still is taking some time to get his ownership up there. So I feel so bad for him. Yeah. Terrible. I don't feel bad, but it's uh 
I always thought that was kind of a miss. Like people are like, oh, it's tough to manage so much capital because it's hard to get into things. But now you see it, like how much time it really does take to get into something if you want to. The uh, the other part here is, do you see this becoming a subsidiary? I don't have any take on that. Maybe, but he shied away from owning things that are anti-ESG because I don't think he wants the trouble of having that fully owned in a world where people don't treat oil companies like they're evil. Maybe. Well, hold on. I don't think he shied away from owning them because- No, owning them outright, I mean. Berkshire Energy- it's I know, like, I know, but he has a big ESG spin on he that. Just, he just doesn't want the questions that he was getting in the well, mid-2000s. The, electri- the energy company is much different, I would say, than an oil company from an ESG worries perspective. Obviously, he probably doesn't care, uh, but I think he shied away from that. He hasn't owned tobacco for, for reasons. There's the famous story of them shying away because they just didn't want the trouble of owning it. So I think, yeah, that's probably why. And Maybe he won't own it outright, but not sure. I have no clue. <laughs> so uh, CEO of Twilio stepped down. Did you see that? Yeah, bullish. The I found it interesting that the CEO of Box kind of backed him up and said, this is a mistake. He's such a good entrepreneur. And I think he mentioned something about being a good developer and it kind of got to my point or it kind of got me thinking like there seems to be a misnomer among especially people in silicon valley and very developer-centric businesses that the ceo is just the head developer true yeah because he was like no this this is a mistake it's like you're, you know, he has drastically underperformed the market himself, like you showed. But it's not, as the CEO, you are, you have a fiduciary responsibility to do your best on behalf of shareholders and other stakeholders as well. And he has not done that well on behalf of shareholders. I think yeah, Twilio, let's, they probably got this one right. Yeah. Let's run the numbers. Uh, last five years, total return, S&P 500, 100% box. 30% Twilio, negative 26. So, yeah, look. Maybe he has created good products. That doesn't mean he's the right guy to be the CEO. Maybe he's a yeah. great CTO. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think it's an example of what we've, not we've, but what you see from reading stuff historically is it's, there's some managers or founders that are perfect for a company that's 100 to 500 people. But then once it gets to 2,000 to 3,000 people and you're a public company, you got to start generating cash. You got to be a little bit of a capital allocator or just understand that type of stuff. You might not be good at that. And it, it just might not be the role for you anymore. There's only a few that can seem to go from the beginning to being a large cap company and do well in all arenas. We all know them. You know, Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't like the guy, but his track record is, you know, undisputable. The and, and others, I guess, Zuckerberg. But a lot of people just aren't men. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, you go from 10, 10 years, you have 
probably a team of 10 people to a team of 2,000. I, I, that would be a lot, very overwhelming. That's Stop. probably what happened here. You probably want a professional coming in, a mercenary. Obviously not someone that's just going to spout out adjusted EBITDA stuff. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. I want to talk about this because it got circulated around the Twitter sphere as well this week. But as a lot of people know, there was that flight. I think it was an Alaska airline. Alaska Airlines flight uh, on a 737 MAX 9 where the door blew off. They safely landed the plane. There weren't any deaths. I think two people were injured. One person was injured. Uh, But everyone is alive. And someone put this up on Wall Street Bets on Reddit. And he said, is it insider trading if I bought Boeing puts while I am inside the wrecked airplane? He says, purely hypothetical, of course. Imagine sitting in an airplane when suddenly the door blows out. Now, while everyone is screaming and grasping for air, you instead turn on your noise-canceling headphones to ignore that crying baby next to you, calmly open your Robinhood app or whatever broker you prefer, I don't care, and load up on Boeing puts. There is no way the market could have already priced that in. It is literally just happening. Would that be considered insider trading? I mean, you are literally inside that wreck of an airplane. On the other hand, one could argue that you were also outside the airplane, given that the door just blew off. I read Matt Levine answered it and said, no, it wouldn't be. But I think it's kind of just a funny thread. Uh, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that... It's a good joke, but... I mean, it's pretty clear it's obviously not insider trading. It's just a good joke. The what do you think of Boeing though? It they got problems. We did that episode, and <sighs> that CEO shouldn't be there. Blackstone, GE absolutely not. Guy? Yeah, absolutely not. I am. Yeah, I'm a bit of a. We got Dave, insiders. We Dave got, Calhoun, right? Dave Calhoun. Yeah, yeah. And we got I'm inside sources too. So yeah. And the CFO. I remember reading that Wall Street Journal article about how the CFO just they built like basically like a little satellite office for him so that he could keep living at his house in Connecticut. And he walks in sometimes with sandals and shorts on. They have strayed so far from the 60s and 70s Boeing management team where they were engineering excellence, engineering focus. It was the pride of really the Northwest the largest yeah. employer for a long time. The, it just feels like they just keep moving further and further away from that. The other part is people I've seen people with takes that say like, Oh, okay. If they just go airless for a while, they stop shooting themselves in the foot. Boeing will be a great investment from here. I don't agree. I do not agree. I don't think it'll ever go so poor. Like they're too big to fail. They're too important to fail. Probably. And they'll always get really cheap debt from the government, but it is not like it is priced well. And this is a business now that is going to be chronically slower. The FAA is going to interject in every decision, in every little minute detail. They're going to walk in and they're going to need to have to check on everything. It's going to operate slower. They're not going to ramp up to production just because Dave Calhoun says a target. Uh, to reach yeah. back their previous deliveries uh, levels. It's just not going to happen. And if they do cut corners, it's a problem. If they don't cut corners, they're not going to meet the numbers that are required to get a good return on the equity. So I think they're in a very difficult spot. 
Yeah, I don't I don't get owning Boeing. It could work, but all evidence points the last 10 years ever since. Well, we have a comment here that reminded me they moved the headquarters to Chicago. The uh, that was in 2000, I believe, but we don't really see the results of that move and the culture change until probably the 787, which was just a total cluster blank. Then we've seen ever since then, ever since the 787 debacle, they've shown time and time again that they are not, say, Lockheed Martin-esque anymore. They just don't have it. And I, I don't know how that changes unless they go through a bleak, bleak period. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I mean, there's such a good chance that things do go wrong. Yeah. And a lot of it is out of their control. I mean, a situation like this, it's, I don't think it has that much to do with like the procedures not being great at Boeing would be my guess. It's just, wow. there's so many, there's so many rooms for, there's so many room for errors, so much room for error. And so many ways that this could go wrong. It's like. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It just feels such like such a hard business to run and own. Yeah. I don't know. It's well, I guess we don't know whose fault it was yet. And part of it could be the outsourced supplier, I believe. So we don't know the full investigation, I guess. But my hunch is that Toyota or Danaher wouldn't have let this happen. So I think it's the productive the culture of manufacturing. Yeah. I imagine there is a lot of pressure to hit numbers as opposed to purely the safety focus, but I don't know. It's it's like with the FAA involved now in every step, if something still goes wrong, is it now in the FAA too? No, I don't think so. Because if their checks don't go right, Whose fault is that? You know. Yeah, I don't get that. If if Boeing said that, I would be like, get zero all your equity. That's ridiculous. The it's look, I I will not defend Boeing. It's it's uh, yeah. I don't. I think a lot of the blame can be put on them for all this stuff. And Airbus is going to eat their lunch, I think. On the flip side. Yeah. Unlimited delivery or unlimited demand right now. <laughs> I know. People still got to go to them. The backlog is enormous. Yeah. People still got to go to them. So, hey, it's, it's, it's a bit of a conundrum of stock. But good comment here from Tyler. Why buy Boeing when you could buy Lockheed Martin at a better valuation? 
return on invested capital, long-term trend, et cetera. I totally agree. Share it just goes to show. comes down. Dividend per share consistently goes up. Uh, way better culture of innovation, way more diversified, cheaper. Uh, yeah, I agree. It just goes to show for me that just because something is a monopoly or a duopoly and demand is guaranteed, that doesn't make it a good investment. Yeah. What's our three tenets? Uh, management. Business quality, cheap or whatever price you pay. Yeah, you need all three. Boeing, arguably great business monopoly, right? Um, some points would, stock was cheap, but management, no. I mean, that executive team, here's what they did. And I would really like us to get back Lou Whiteman on. I'm sorry, for, that's how you pronounce his name, right? Whitman or what? Yeah. Because he knows as well, he had a tweet out there that reminded me of this. Calhoun was the chair of the board during the max deadly crashes. Like, how would how is that going to fix things? He was the chair of the board. They got to gut everyone here. I remember listening to interviews with him, and it's just so... It's not... He's not an engineer. Maybe he is. I actually don't know. He could be an engineer, but that was not, it didn't seem like that was his focus. And it's just, I don't know. They got to have someone else. They have to have a, a lead engineer. It's like the opposite of uh, the developer yeah. companies needing a head developer. You need someone where that is their primary focus. Yeah. And at this time, like at some points in Boeing's history, maybe it, you don't need someone from manufacturing or engineering. But at this point in time, all of Boeing's problems are from manufacturing and engineering. So you probably want some people that know about that fixing the company. Okay, there's um, all a, right. uh, I was going to say else? a couple things. I didn't put this in our notes for today, but I ran, I'm a thread boy now. I, I ran a thread of eight companies with big moats that people don't pay attention to, I guess it was like, whatever. Shout out A little more clickbait. Um, but I will go through some of them. I want you to tell me if you find any of them interesting. Did you yeah. see it? You see the, the uh, I retweeted it, but I don't remember all the companies. So I will find it and follow along with you. Let me look real quick. I don't remember all of them either, but okay. Number one is I'm gonna have trouble pronouncing this. So Societe de Baines de Mer is SBM. It's basically the exclusive casino operator in Monaco. Um, they own 52 properties, including the Monte Carlo. Some of them are casinos. Some of them are big hotels, restaurants, stuff like that. And there's like a saying that SBM is Monaco, Monaco is SBM. Basically, it's the company performance tends to trend in line with uh, money being spent in Monaco and, and traveler visitorship to Monaco. So that's number one. Transurban, this is a toll road operator. Uh, they're Australian, but they also have property, like they have the I some of the I-95 express lanes on the East Coast. They operate those. Uh, there's built-in annual, <clears throat> built annual price escalators with that. The 
third one here, FDJ. This is the exclusive operator of France's national lottery games. Fourth one is right move. <clears throat> this one's a little different. It's a little, uh, maybe a little more interesting, a little less like a infrastructure moat. It's the leading online real estate portal in the UK. They have like nine out of every 10 homes are listed or advertised on the platform, 86% market share. The fifth one is AENA, AENA, SME. They basically are the entire Spanish airport base. They account for 99% of Spain's commercial air traffic. Six, Mexican Stock Exchange. Seven, Ecopetrol, the uh, state-owned oil company in Colombia. Your, your neck of the woods. Yeah, I'm helping them out right now. The uh, eighth one here is Jumbo Interactive. It's an Australian digital lottery. They are state-sanctioned reseller of Australian digital digital lottery tickets. Do any of these interest you? I already knew about the Mexican Stock Exchange. I like that one. Haven't researched it yet. Maybe that could be a fun one. Uh, I like the airports in Spain, all those Spain companies. This is a generalization, but seem to not put a huge amount of emphasis on per share value creation. But I like to see this company specifically. It doesn't mean they are specifically bad. And I like the real estate portal in the, in the United Kingdom, but... I'm not a fan of, say, a company that gets government rights or things that can get taken away fairly easily. Like if you have the airport, okay, they can nationalize the airport, but the airport's still going to be there. It needs to be used. The casino rights, I, I sure, uh, doesn't interest me too much, but toll roads are not necessarily my favorite because there is always a chance that the government could say, actually, no toll roads anymore. Maybe in the United States, it's more fair, but in Australia, it'd be more fair. But I know that to- Brookfield has run into trouble in South America buying toll roads. And I think part of the problem with those is that, yes, it's all, you know, it's the definition of a good business, but yeah, not my favorite. I like the other ones better. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's also, yeah, I think in the U.S. they'd probably have to pay out whatever some sum, or they'd have to like buy the business or something like that. Because I'm sure there's a contract in there that states they get to operate it for however long. The other one I saw, and this is kind of interesting. It's not publicly traded, but in 2008, kind of the depths of the financial crisis. Chicago was looking for ways to raise income at the city of Chicago. And they had explored like and raising their uh, like property taxes or something like that. But given all the difficulty around real estate at the time, they didn't want to do that. So what they did is they sold their parking meters to, they, they basically had an, auction for it and someone uh i don't know if it was an auction or how it necessarily worked but some consortium of investors bought the parking meters for can't remember the price and instantly just started jacking up the prices of all the parking spots 
or uh, all the parking meter rates. So kudos to whoever built that investor consortium because that is some valuable assets. Yeah. Although from a personal perspective, I would say there may be some things that I'd rather have the government run. And the parking meters might be one of them. <laughs> but it probably worked out pretty well as an investment. Yeah, uh, yeah those are interesting. I think the stock exchange could be fun. We haven't really done a stock exchange. I think the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, I think both are publicly traded. Uh, we haven't done those, but probably boring for the, the podcast because it's covered so much. I think maybe the Mexican Stock Exchange could be a fun one to do this year to research. Yeah, apparently there's like another competing exchange that's trying to become more popular there, but has well, failed. That makes it a more uh, fun podcast for sure. So maybe not I'm a monopoly also, yet, but an emerging one. I'm also working on a bit of a new a new thread, so foreshadowing here, on brick-and-mortar retailers with better than 20% ROIC. Can you guess who would be on that list? I only have like nine. There's probably more, but... You're still working you on guess? Costco? Um, nope. Home Depot? Costco's not... Uh, ROIC's been like... Just Home, De- north Home of Depot, ten to t- yes, Home Depot's there. Lowe's then, or no? Just under. I did like the last ten year average ROIC, and it's like just under twenty percent. Well, I'm looking at your tweets on FinChat, which for anyone, uh, go follow them on X slash Twitter. It's probably part of Ryan's KPIs to get those followers <laughs> up. Uh, Ulta, I'm seeing you tweeted here about Ulta, so I think that might be in there. Ulta is in there, Tyler. Mentions that in the comments here. Ulta's in there. William Sonoma, I think, was just short. Their ROIC has kind of skyrocketed as of late, but earlier this decade, they were not generating such good returns on the capital they invested. All right. Fun teaser. Any any There's, other teasers? One that surprised me was Hibbit. Alex Morris, Science of Hitting, wrote them up this morning. Apparently, John Hempton owns like 5% of the company. He did a write-up as well. John Hempton did. They are they they have had impressive returns on Investor Capital. The number one is kind of cheating because it's a franchiser. Winmark. Yeah, those I'd say that doesn't count. <laughs> you gotta own the real estate. Well, Doesn't mean it's a bad business. A lot of the companies business, don't. But... A lot of the companies don't own the real estate, but they lease it. Yeah, the okay. Uh, you, have to, you have to lease the real estate. There has to be some capex. Well, I'm not yeah, not the right either way. The uh, yeah, there's got to be something there. Um, but there yeah. it, it got me thinking. There really aren't that many like brick and mortar retail franchise concepts mm. that I've seen. What do you mean? I mean, restaurants, you mean? You mean excluding restaurants? I'm talking like retail stores, like yeah, no. specialty okay. retail, like Ross, Lululemon. A lot of them own that whole experience. Yeah, I wonder why food, it's with restaurants and fast food, it's more, I don't know. Yeah, People lean sure. into that more. All right, anyway. other topics. Do What do we want to hit here? We got about 15 minutes left, I think. Although, because we didn't start right on time. Inflation came in, maybe. We can talk about that. Uh, High, low. It, if you can see the chart here, a little higher than expected. 
nothing crazy. Uh, here's the CNBC article. Uh, we have a chart here. It was basically on a month over month. It was 0.3% when, which is much higher than October or November, but still below August and September. So if we look at kind of the last 12 months, there's been a huge difference after the Ukraine and oil price shock in early 2022. Um, after that, it's kind of been more normalized at this three, three to 4% range, but it hasn't really gone down, uh, which may be concerning to people. But here's the quote from the CNBC article. Much of the increase came due to rising shelter costs. The category rose 0.5% for the month and accounted for more than half the core CPI increase. On an annual basis, shelter cost increased 6.2%, or about two-thirds of the rise in inflation. And, quote, Fed officials largely expect shelter costs to decline through the year as renewed leases reflect lower rents. And we are seeing continued uh, slight decreases, but for all intents and purposes, stagnation in rental uh, prices for, say, people renting apartments or something like that. Redfin has an estimate that the median U.S. asking rent fell 0.8% year over year in December to $1,964. So let's keep it going. Yeah, let's keep that stagnation going. Supply. uh, We talked about this on our show with Lance Lambert, that supply in multifamily was absolutely booming and it could have a major effect on all parts of the residential real estate market. I think it's quite interesting. I guess I hate making predictions about inflation, but it seems right now not very much surprise. There's not very much surprise here where if you X out the rent, the shelter costs, which people will complain about, but if you exit out and assume that these ones without a leg, because the one in the CPI has a leg when you're analyzing the shelter price increases, and if you go on the more real-time data that places like Redfin and Zillow have, it seems like inflation will come down over the next six to 12 months, but who knows? Oil could be at $120. Food costs could be soaring. We had that question earlier that Ryan teased that Tyler just asked again. Yes, thank you, Ryan. Didn't, or thank you, Tyler. Didn't forget about the Red Sea stuff with those terrorist groups bombing ships. And I don't know the exact details. So people are going down around South Africa instead of through the Suez Canal. That could definitely be inflationary, right? But TBD, I think in general, things look fine from what the Fed maybe can control. But again, I have no confidence in having any take care. It seems like, hey, nothing to be concerned about right now, but who knows? The consumer could fall off a cliff by the end of the year. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I, have, I really don't have a take with the shipping stuff. I haven't really followed the Panama Canal. I heard about the Red Sea. I've seen some articles about that in the Wall Street Journal, but how big of a chunk of that? Like how big of global shipping go what percentage goes through those channels? I'd be curious. Ooh, probably I really quite have a no bit. idea. Probably quite a bit. How's my voice? You yeah. said you sent a message that it's robotic. Is it fixed? A little bit. I don't know. It mm. just keeps coming in slightly. Uh, Something we'll just keep going. If someone, if if anyone in the comments or if anyone listening thinks Brett's voice is a little off, let us know somehow. Whether it's yeah, because my or whatever. My Cause internet, we never have any idea. 
It's yeah, hard for true. us to tell unless we listen. So, and sometimes it's a little cringy or difficult listening to ourselves over and over. So, uh, I don't know if it's as cringy as it used to be, but it's just tiresome. So I got Tyler saying it sounds normal to me. So maybe it's just on my end. I'll leave it. Uh, yeah, but, my internet seems fine, but Hey, hopefully the mic is okay. Um, but let me look that up for you, of, Ryan. Keep going. I'm curious. I was going to say, how have you got, gotten any anecdotal evidence on Columbia yet after a week there, week and a half, two weeks? I remember we covered Dollarama, saw Dollar City, and a lot Ooh. of busy. It was busy. A lot of big buildings going up. I'm not in one of the big cities, though. I'm on the coast. So I'm visiting Bogota uh, for a weekend. So that's the biggest city. So maybe I'll get better anecdotal evidence there. Bank of Colombia. It's one of the big banks. People seem to be going to the, the bank when I walk by. Right. Yeah, I think some of these grocery stores could be interesting. Um, yeah, I'm going to a gym that has a that seems to be a chain, but I don't know if they're public. And the economy hasn't collapsed, I guess, as some people might see in the media, right? But I'm glad yeah. I'm not in Ecuador, where they seem to having be having a coup right now. The uh, all right, well, that's good. That's good anecdata. Where uh, it's like every time you say something, like if you just said like, "Oh, there's a gym," like this is gym stock in the U.S., but like, uh, eh, no thanks. But you're like gym in Colombia. I'm like, oh, okay. Five times that earnings. Could, yeah. That could be investable. Uh, yeah, but yeah, Bank of Colombia. I don't. Know. How's the uh, cost of living in Colombia? Tyler asked in the chat. Pretty cheap. Pretty cheap. Nice. Although I am in the most expensive city because it is kind of the vacation town. So it's very cheap. And, and part of it is because the dollars appreciated so much. So it depends, I think, on where you're from. But yeah, if we look at you, okay, I looked it up. Are you using a Wise card or you stick, can you use Amex down there? Actually, you can use a lot of Amex. I've been testing it out. Uh, yeah. Interesting. But I just use the credit card typically. Although I use Wise for taking out deposits and it's sort of a backup, but yeah. Okay. Panama canal, 40% of all us container traffic goes through there according to Google. So now we're experts. We know all about it. Let me look at the Suez canal. Wait, what have the shipping issues been in the Panama canal? They have a drought, low water levels. So not every ship can go through there. Okay. Let's look up the Suez canal. We're becoming experts in real time here, folks. But that's that's sarcasm. I think Suez Canal is probably much much bigger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that that last one is U.S., but Egypt's Suez Canal handles about ten percent of international maritime trade and is one of the world's busiest waterways. So ten percent that could have an effect, but is this going to be an inflationary like catalyst? Maybe slightly, but think about that. 10%. Okay, the other 90% isn't going through there. And shipping costs are a small percentage of overall inflation. So, no, I don't. Right? Just do the math there. I don't think it's going to... Other things would have to happen for it to turn into the same thing that happened in 2021 with the shipping crisis. And if you look at shipping rates, 
they're nowhere near. They've spiked a little bit. I think they doubled, but they're nowhere near where they were in 2021 and early 2022. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd be curious because this can impact a lot of retail companies. I remember looking at, I mean, even Amazon, they their retail profitability in North America and international when all their input costs had shot up to 2020 just really faltered. Now everything's kind of come back down and they've been much more profitable since, but other companies, uh, anyone that's sourcing a lot of their uh, goods internationally, which I think is like most retail companies these days, they're going to have a hard time with that. Yeah. Some of it, but uh, depends on what company, because some companies are probably going from East Asia and Southeast Asia across the Pacific ocean to long beach. I'm surprised if those rates spiked. Yeah, there's not exactly, um, but who knows? Who knows? I I have no clue. <laughs> I think it's some. It's fascinating. I think it's fascinating to watch, but it's an example of also. Maybe I want companies in my portfolio that are insulated from the potential of these type of things happening, where I don't want to worry about this at all. Yeah, it's very true. Just don't. Uh, I, my conclusion on everything is just don't Visa and Mastercard. That's the conclusion on every investment, <laughs> right? The the, whole, the best gross profit royalty. Inflation side. Own Mastercard. Yeah, shipping costs go up. Own Visa. Blah blah blah. All right, last topic, Ryan. What do you want to do? You want to do this Amazon stuff? More layoffs, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of boring. Let's the there's layoffs. Seems like they're. Old Jassy's finding religion around uh, cost controls here. All right, I got a fun question. Okay, say say it, but then I'll maybe something that can be more of a fun topic related to Amazon. Yeah, just uh, layoffs in the streaming division and the Twitch division, which uh, so Prime Video and Twitch, which I think is also kind of interesting because they raise prices on Prime Video, I believe, or Prime, or they added advertisements. Yes. And if you want to avoid them, you can pay extra, right? That's correct. That's correct. I'm not a Prime subscriber, so I was not wow. checking the loop on this. Are you on a family I'm a moocher. Prime? I'm a moocher. You're a moocher, yeah. Okay, what's okay, your question? Yeah, so related to these layoffs, related to the layoffs last year and the margin expansion, I believe we're getting, we're about 5% uh, operating margins in North America, AWS is higher. International is basically like negative 1%. By Q3 2024, so a year from now versus what we've seen reported, they haven't done their Q4 report yet. Are Amazon's operating margins below or above 10% in that quarter? Uh, Like, Total holistic operating margins, like across the entire business, consolidated. Yes, I'll go below. I think they will get above ten percent over time. And Ed Chang came on our podcast and pitched Amazon last year, and he said he thinks it could be even fifteen percent or higher. I think he's probably right, but I don't think there's any incentive for them to really push the operating margin that quickly. They, throughout history, time and time again, have often foregone short-term margins to deepen their moat. And 
I see no reason why that won't continue. I think that's a good point, but on my investing on scripted prediction for Amazon to finish the year as the largest company in the world, I would probably need this to be true. So I'm going to say, yes, it's above 10%. I think there's a world where it's true. And I think that's why it's a fun question. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Do you own Amazon now? I don't, which is conflicting. Yes, I know. It's one of those things. It doesn't make any sense. It was in the fund, but for some reason, when we redid it, we just mentally avoided it have the, you to gripe about stuff that goes up that uh we don't own for stupid reasons have you seen what the nintendo adr has been doing yeah it's also you haven't right? look, look at look it up right now uh in u.s dollar terms it's not at all-time high because of the yen but look at that nintendo adr right now do you want to guess what's up in the last three months 15%. 27.3%. For what? Just good data coming out about video game downloads? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I'm guessing Switch 2 rumors are materializing, which I've seen, and possibly the yen. So let's check the yen. Eh, the yen recovered a bit, but... Not that much. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Tyler says the Nintendo CFO finally found their Robinhood password. Yeah. Oh. Maybe they're buying back. Yeah, but I think they have to announce that first in Japan, but not an expert on the rules. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I think we have a minute to go. I will say I've been researching booking holdings, like the business, although I l- listened to an interview with Glenn Fogel, CEO. If I'm betting who takes more share over the next five, 10 years, it's Airbnb between those two. Interesting. Little tease for the episode, huh? And it's a good example of the kind of CEO that's required depending on the company, uh, the company's stage of the life cycle. So for me, it feels like uh, Chesky is able to move faster. There's less bureaucracy. He can make changes quickly. And he's an owner operator. So it's kind of nice when you're trying to move fast to have an owner operator at the helm because he can really kind of make the decisions. I don't know if he does make all the decisions. I'm sure he delegates some autonomy to different divisions below him, but. At booking, there's so many divisions, there's separate companies, there's probably a lot more bloat. I would imagine Airbnb continues to grow share. All right. Well, don't go too long. I'll still spoil the whole episode. But yeah, Ryan's researching that right now. I'm researching Hims and Hers, which is going to be a fascinating one. I, I think it's a fascinating company. I'm not sure if I like the business yet, but haven't finished my research. Sorry, I got and, eye for everyone watching. Um, go ahead, Ryan. And... We're going to be doing a show on Wednesday. So this is coming out Sunday on the podcast, or if you're listening, watching it live on YouTube, it's on Thursday. Next Wednesday, the, what is that? Like the 16th, 17th? They will, uh, we'll be doing a show on Norbert Liu, the best investor you've never heard of. Maybe some people <laughs> Maybe. have probably heard of him, but we're Maybe. thinking about giving it that catchy title. We're going to talk about his portfolio and his performance. 
Yeah. So I think that's the pretty much locked in schedule next week. Punch card capital number Lou. Uh, week after hims and hers. Week after that, I believe we're doing a Netflix and Streaming Wars update with Alex Morris from The Science of Hitting and Francisco Oliveira from RV Low Capital. And then Booking Holdings, who Ryan is researching, although the exact order of these, not exactly sure, but that's the schedule. So, hey, watch out for those in your podcast players of choice. And every Thursday, we're still going to be doing these live. Uh, apologies to everyone for going 15 minutes late, but I'm sure it's not that big of a deal. Thank you for the people that joined us live. Let's give a disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan, I, and any podcast guests may own securities discussed in this podcast, may have owned them in the past, and may buy, sell, or hold them in the future. If you want to watch this episode live and comment or ask us questions, you can join us at 9.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 12.30 Eastern Time, on our YouTube page, which will there will be a link there in the show notes. Okay. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week.